0: Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. (laughs) I have with me uh, Professor Ron Patterson, who is a professor at the University of Auckland and uh, is a specialist in health law. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Chris. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here with me on the podcast. I thought I'd share with you that earlier in the week I had Dr. Matthew Collins QC, who's a, a Melbourne barrister specialising in defamation and we had a, we had a fantastic uh, session in the, in the podcast. The reason why I thought I might mention that to you in terms of relevance is the what I often say to my two teenage boys is that there are a number of things that are very important in life and, and they, they do have a bit of a hierarchy. And the second thing that I say to, to my two teenage boys is reputation. I say to them, If you lose your reputation, you're placed at a grave disadvantage in life, and so it's important that you always maintain a good reputation. But I also say to them that the only thing that trumps your reputation is your health. If you don't have your health, you don't have anything else. So it's it's completely a pleasure to have you with me, and I'm looking forward to diving deep into the areas of health law and health policy. Ron Patterson has law degrees from the University of Auckland and Oxford University. Ron has been a lecturer at the University of Auckland's Faculty of Law uh, from uh, 1986 to 1999 and a Professor of Law since 2010. He is a distinguished fellow at Melbourne uh, Law School. His career has been spent in tertiary education public sector roles. Ron has a Fulbright and Harkness fellowship in bioethics and health policy. He's the author of The Good Doctor, What Patients Want, which was published in 2012. And he's the co-editor of Skegg and Patterson: Health Law in New Zealand, published in 2015. His research interests include complaint resolution, inquiries, health care, quality, and the regulation of professions. Ron was a deputy director general of health between 1999 and 2000. He was the Health and Disability Commissioner between 2000 to 2010. He was the Chair of the Banking Ombudsman Scheme between 2010 and 13, and the Parliamentary Ombudsman between 2013 and 16. He's the Chair of the New Zealand Centre for Human Rights Law Policy and Practice. Ron has led several major policy advisory reviews in New Zealand, including the review of the Veterans Support Act 2018 and the Government Inquiry into Mental Health and Addiction 2018. He's also been involved in major reviews in Australia, including the review of the use of chaperones to protect patients in Australia in 2017, and the review of the National Aged Care Quality Regulatory Processes in 2017. Ron was awarded an ONZM for his services to health in 2011, and was made an Honorary Fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians in 2014. Uh, Good morning. Welcome, Ron, again. Thank you. Now, Ron, I wanted to talk to you first of all about um, why health law? What, what brought you into, into that sphere?
1: So uh, I had returned to the University of Auckland as a lecturer in uh, 1986 and because I'd had a little bit of time in practice um, and then I'd been away teaching in Canada. I'd sort of been teaching in corporate commercial stuff and my heart wasn't really in it. Uh, and I recall uh, in 1987-1988 watching the Cartwright Inquiry unfold and I'd always been fascinated in those sorts of, of, of issues, questions of informed consent. Uh, I remember in high school, you know, debating on topics like euthanasia and abortion uh, and so I was drawn to the topic and, and there was no course being offered in Auckland so I started a course and my interest grew from that. What I found is the more I got into it, and I was largely self-taught, but the more I got into it, I realised that there were great opportunities to, to actually go and, and and work in the health sector, and so I started doing that in the mid-1990s when we had the first major health reforms for some years that, if you can remember that long ago, we had uh, Crown Health Enterprises and regional health authorities and so forth, and we're about to have another lot of health reforms now, so that was what first took me into health. And One thing led to another, and I have no regrets. It's been and continues to be my passion.
0: Now, look, you mentioned that you had an interest in the Cartwright Inquiry. For a lot of listeners, um, they they won't know what you're you're talking about. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that inquiry involved?
1: So what that inquiry involved was, uh, and it came to light, as these things often do, an article written by uh, two uh, journalists and 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 an academic revealing that Uh, Women at National Women's Hospital had been going uh, for some years, and had been receiving uh, instead of standard treatment for a uh, cervical cancer, cervical uh, carcinoma in situ, they were being monitored without their knowledge. They were part of an unfortunate experiment led by um, Herbert Green and it'd be no proper monitoring, no proper ethics committee approval, and women, some women died, some women uh, suffered terrible and, and uh, avoidable harm. They hadn't had the standard treatment of a, uh, a cone biopsy or perhaps a hysterectomy. Uh, and Judge Sylvia Cartwright, when the government called an inquiry, and she chaired that inquiry and she listened to all the expert evidence, she reported that New Zealand needed, amongst other things, to have a proper um code of patients' rights, to have a commissioner complaint system, to set up patient advocacy services, and to have a proper system of ethics reviews, that we needed to put informed consent and respect for patients uh, at the heart of our system and in our law.
0: Her report um, was covering, uh, I guess looking at what was really systemic failures uh, in that particular sector uh, not only over a few years, but it seemed to be a couple of decades. Was there, is that right?
1: That's right. It had gone on over many, many years. Okay,
0: and I mean it's quite extraordinary that uh, it could go on for so long without those problems being identified.
1: It is extraordinary, but it in some ways reflected the sort of paternalism of the time. You know, the idea that doctor knows best, and that it's best to leave doctors to run their own systems and really what we've been what we've seen in this country ever since judge cartwright's uh, report and of course this has been paralleled with, with other movements internationally thinking back to the 1960s in terms of in terms of consumerism uh, and and you know starting to recognize that we had a system that was very much built around the providers what they call provider centered and that we needed to recognize that patients have rights including the right to decide what happens about their body and they need to be given the information so they can make those decisions.
0: What came out of the Cartwright Inquiry? What, what were the positive uh, outcomes that you believe came out of that inquiry?
1: So, uh, a system of proper system of ethics committees were set up for uh, for ethical approval of, of research. There was, um, and it took some years. The the I mean, the profession acted quite quickly, and the medical council said. Uh, developed its own statement on informed consent. But in 1994, the Health and Disability Commissioner Act was passed. The first commissioner, Robin Stent, was appointed. And by law, her first job was to consult with the community uh, and with the the key uh, stakeholders, including the New Zealand Medical Association and other provider groups, uh, about what patients' rights should be put into this new law. Interestingly, not the right to get an operation in the first place. So it didn't give you access because uh, the politicians, the government thought that that was a question that's best decided at the ballot box, Uh, but anything that related to respect, to quality of care, to information and consent. So those were the matters. And a complaint system, so enforceable, through the Health and Disability Commissioner. Uh, And this was course a very important complement to the fact that in New Zealand you you can't actually sue uh, effectively because of the no-fault compensation scheme. So it's all the more important uh, that there is an enforceable complaint system uh, with complaints being assessed uh, with a link from the Commissioner through to disciplinary process for the more serious cases and that this would be a way that we could, as the law says, promote and protect the rights of consumers, noting, of course, that this was not just for patients in hospital, not just for uh, patients in the community, but also for people with disabilities who are accessing services.
0: Well, Ron, I want to come back to uh, the intersection between our ACC uh, regime and uh, the provision of health services in a moment. But also, at, at about the same time in the mid-90s, the, the current statute piece of uh, legislation that governs medical practitioners came into force. That's the Medical Practitioners Act of 1995. What were the improvements of of, of that piece of legislation?
1: Well, one of the key improvements was giving the Medical Council, instead of, instead of when there's a complaint, having to simply further matter through to the Commissioner and the potential discipline, often what's really needed is for someone to have a look-see at the doctor's competence, uh, and so interestingly, the, the cases going to the Disciplinary Tribunal for Doctors peaked in about the mid-1990s. And the reason they started to drop off is because there was another tool uh, in the toolbox. So and that tool was to say, actually, we think this doctor needs some more support, some more retraining, some rehabilitation. Going down the disciplinary route is not appropriate. Uh, and that was the forerunner of... the the legislative changes brought in by the Health Practitioners Competence Assurance Act. So there was a new umbrella statute for all the professions in 2003, and all the other professions also then uh, had the ability to go to a competence review instead of simply going down the disciplinary route. And this was in parallel with the recognition internationally in the patient safety movement that most of the things that go wrong uh, in healthcare are due to systemic problems and so uh, it's better to take a rehabilitative approach rather than seeking to find individual wrongdoers and punish them.
0: Yes look there was another piece of legislation that was amended um, and I, I believe you may have had some involvement in that and that was the crimes act following a, a number of prosecutions against doctors for manslaughter you you were involved in some of those changes weren't you
1: yeah, I was involved in opposing them at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I look back now, and I have a different perspective on it. But at that time, uh, it, because there were not the avenues, so because of ACC, you couldn't effectively bring a civil suit, the disciplinary system was still, you know, for doctors, it was run by doctors, and they had one you know, lay member, but it wasn't seen as sufficiently rigorous or independent. Uh, it was also sort of clothed in secrecy. Uh, and there started to be sort of a pent-up uh, feeling, I think, in the community, and partly I think it was also due to changes in the Coroner's Act that more deaths in hospital uh, were being reported to the coroners, and the police had started to investigate cases, and we suddenly, even though the law had been on the books you know, for decades, uh, and the courts were clear that it was you know, settled in law, that what the statute said was that you should exercise reasonable care if you're doing dangerous things, and surgery is a dangerous thing, uh, and that was speci- you know, specified in Section 155 of the Crimes Act. Uh, and the courts had further said that any breach of reasonable care that results in the, in the death of a patient, that was culpable homicide, uh, because it wasn't intentional, of course, it, it would be manslaughter. And suddenly, we saw a number of anesthetists through the uh, 90, well, a couple of cases in the 1980s, and then a run in the early 1990s, in which, in particular, an anesthetist um, who had failed to exercise reasonable care, the patient had died as a result. And of course, with anesthesia, when you're injecting a dangerous drug, it's much easier to show a direct link, you know, in terms of causation in the criminal law. Uh, and so, there were prosecutions, there were convictions. Uh, and there was, particularly around a case uh, in Hamilton, uh, there was a real uproar within the profession, uh, and a number of, of professional leaders, uh, including um, Alan Murray and Exodus, campaigned to have the law changed. Uh, and I, I think at the time, Sandra Coney and I were about the two people, you know, calling for moderation. I was resistant to anything that was. Uh, going to single out doctors. Happily the change that was made did not single out doctors and it simply said that in order effectively to prosecute for for manslaughter in such a case, manslaughter by omission, there had to be a major departure from the standard to be expected in the circumstances and that addressed the problem and, and there was a, a, I think there's only been two prosecutions uh, since that time and they haven't been successful. So the, the criminal law, which I accept, was not the appropriate way to deal with medical mistakes. I think it should be reserved, actually, not just for major departures, but but for reckless conduct, yes, yeah, so, something of that level of seriousness. Uh, and so we've, you know, we don't think about the criminal law these days, unless somebody, you know, is turning up drunk at work or is has skived off when they're supposed to be on duty. You know, there'd be some circumstances when it would be appropriate. Uh, to say, as we would say colloquially, that's criminal, what that uh, practitioner did.
0: Often it's a natural human reaction, particularly when you've lost a loved one, to go through the process of grief. And and part of the process of grief often is is trying to understand what went wrong and, and attribute some blame. And of course, doctors are easy targets. If a patient dies on an operating table... The, the first group that you're going to look at is is the doctors that were involved. Now in New Zealand we've got a, a unique system of uh, no fault injury compensation, which includes the fact that there isn't a right to sue for wrongful death. We're quite unique in New Zealand in that regard. Do you see that as inhibiting or any way preventing? doctors from being able to be good doctors, because if they don't have the, the fear of being sued in negligence, um, and you've just gone over that, really being sued for manslaughters now, or uh, being prosecuted for manslaughter is uh, quite unlikely, except in extreme cases. Do you think the, the ACC legislation in any way uh, doesn't encourage good medical practice?
1: No, I, 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 uh, I I don't think that it's uh, that it's going to inhibit good medical practice in fact quite the reverse there's every reason to think that because uh, our ACC legislation is now with the changes that came in, in 2005 you know truly a, a, a no-fault uh, system for for treatment injury uh, then the doctor should be able to, to to focus actually in, in a situation where there has been an injury. They should be assisting the patient uh, or family to bring a claim, uh, but also they should be focusing on how to improve their own systems, uh, how to you know reflect, as, as good doctors do, uh, through their mortality and morbidity reviews, through all the different systems they have to look at what went wrong here uh, and how can we prevent this sort of thing happening again.
0: OK, now... In your role as a Health and Disabilities Commissioner, and your interests generally are beyond New Zealand in terms of when things go wrong um, and doctors behave badly, I mean, would it be fair to say that you should really be quite the cynic about uh, our medical system?
1: Well, <laughs> I suppose you could you could assume that, but quite the contrary, because as commissioner, you don't simply sit in your office and you know read files. You're there to promote and protect. Uh, the rights of patients and, and the way I conceived of the role, uh, that meant engaging engaging with consumer groups, but also engaging with the profession, uh, engaging with our with our public and private hospitals, with all, you know with organisations. So I made it my business to get out uh, and to talk to, to the groups. And of course, you know what you quickly realise, um, and it's no surprise that you know, nobody goes to work to try and and cause harm to patients. Uh, our doctors, our nurses, our midwives are working in very complex and stressed systems, uh, and things do go wrong. Equally, I learnt that, uh, and, and, and not just from, from anecdote, but from the, uh, you know, from the research that I continued to be in, engaged in even when I was as, com- as Commissioner, you know, most patients don't actually want a scalp. Uh, they're not looking to blame someone. As you said, they're looking for an explanation. Uh, and so if you, can, if you can sort of focus on, on how to bridge the shared interest in improving quality of care uh, for, for patients, uh, then that, that, that's a very good start. Having said that, nurses, other practitioners do need to be held accountable. Uh, partic- and it's not simply a question of hold, all, you know, it's always the system. People do start to get a bit cynical if they hear, oh, that's just a systems problem. Uh, because we all know uh, that it, it also takes individuals uh, to make a system work, and and so I think there does need to be an appropriate level of accountability uh, in our system. Uh, but just coming back to your original point, you know, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, people in this country get very good quality care, quality information, uh, and um, you know, we should all feel confident. Uh, we go into hospital if we need to uh, to have treatment.
0: Okay. Well, actually, that segues into quite a good point. I mean, uh, if we can start talking about your your book now, you do make the point in your book that, generally speaking, public confidence in our health systems actually quite high. So, why write a book about improving or improvements that could be made to our to our health system? It
1: comes back to. Uh, my participation as an expert at the uh, public inquiry into Dr Harold Shipman. So listeners may not re- remember, but Harold Shipman uh, was a general practitioner in Hyde, a, uh, a suburb on the outskirts of Manchester, very popular GP. But people started to notice that uh, quite a few of his patients seemed to be dying uh, unexpectedly. And eventually through the, through the Assistance of of a uh, of a lawyer whose whose mother uh, was one of his victims, the coroner and the police were finally prompted to uh, exhume some some bodies. Uh, many of many of the patients had been, who died had been cremated, but some were exhumed and they and they discovered uh, that he had been in, uh, injecting fatally injecting patients. He was convicted of the murder of fifteen patients, but it later came to light. Through the inquiry that I attended, that up to two hundred and fifty of his patients uh, had been murdered by a shipment, which makes him one of the world's most prolific serial killers.
0: There were some warning, early warning signs that were being sent out that things weren't right. We were, there was there was wasn't there? Absolutely. The Undertaker's
1: yeah. daughter thought something was going on, and so there'd been there'd been earlier um, you know, concerns put to to the coroner, but they hadn't sort of gone anywhere. Uh, but coming back to why why then focus on competence, because after all, Harold Chipman, in fact, was a highly competent doctor. He was, he, he was guidelines compliant, as they say. Uh, you know, he, he knew how to provide good care.
0: Well, uh, he, also, he also had a licence, and doesn't a licence mean you're competent?
1: Well, one might assume so. So the judge, uh, Dame Janet Smith, became fascinated with the debate that had been going on for some years. The General Medical Council had started uh, process of looking at how you ensure that the doctors remain competent, and they call it revalidation. Uh, and she was sort of focusing her questions on that. And I remember sitting there thinking, "Gosh, well, I'm not exactly sure how, how that is done because, of course, in our system, that's not the role of the Health and Disability Commissioner. That's the role of the professional bodies like the Medical Council. Uh, and so I remember doing, you know, get, getting on the computer and 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 uh, reading up enough to answer her questions but I was intrigued uh, because it looked to me as if it was awfully light uh, light touch uh, and the more I talked to to doctors themselves and to regulators people would sort of say to you privately well yes most doctors provide good care but we know that, that there's a small group and might be three to five percent uh, who are practising below standards uh, who are uh, Day, as a doctor wouldn't want to treat themselves or a family member. Uh, and, and I uh, believed that we shouldn't, as a member and I still do as a member of the public, we shouldn't have to take good luck uh, and that we all assume uh, that the medical council is checking that doctors remain competent and the more I and so that was the sort of idea for the book. Uh, and I, uh, I was fortunate to get a grant from the Law Foundation. Uh, in New Zealand to uh, to research international systems uh, and New Zealand systems, uh, and you know I came up with some recommendations of how to improve uh, the system. And I, in a way, I sort of caught the wave of something that was starting to to be a growing movement internationally. Both the General Medical Council uh, in Canada and Australia, United States, uh, and here in New Zealand, they've all begun to tighten their systems, and of course that spread. From from doctors to all professions, it's important whether it's a pharmacist or a, uh, a pharmacist or a midwife or a nurse. We also need to know that they remain competent in their um, field of practice.
0: You make the point in your book that doctors have the immense ability to cause great good, but they also have the inverse, and they can cause serious harm, fatal harm, to the point. And and your book very much is focused on the doctor and the patient, which is a, which is only a subset of our health system. What was your reason for just wanting to focus on the doctor-patient relationship?
1: Well, as I say early on in the book, it, it, I accept that greater gains, probably in terms of safety, will be made by looking at systems. But I guess personally, I was just fascinated by that doctor-patient relationship uh, and. You know what makes it work. How can it work more effectively? uh, And and also that simply because this is only one issue, uh, it might only be part of the problem. It is still a serious part of the problem. And we were all, I think, as members of the public, under the assumption that we could rely on you know on the license to practice, on the, the fact that you've got a current practice certificate. It's there on the wall. You know that's this like the certificate of good housekeeping, we, you know, we, we all rely on that. And like,
0: like a warrant of fitness. Yeah, like a
1: warrant of fitness. I, 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 I use that example in, in my book. Uh, and so um, when we discover that it ain't necessarily so, uh, and, and, and certainly research in this country had shown that you know, 75% of patients assumed that these checks were already being done, whereas in fact what was happening uh, and the same was happening in other professions lawyers and um, for example uh, you know people going off and doing their continuing professional development and peer review and sitting in conferences and seminars and uh, actually you know the educational research shows that that's for people who might have some problems in their practice that sort of passive learning is not a very good way uh, of ensuring that you change your practice and as you also said chris stakes are higher in medicine because mistakes, a lack of care, uh, can have fatal consequences.
0: Now, look, we're living in an age where medicine's delivered with um, new terminology that we probably haven't heard in in previous decades or generations. Uh, In particular, we hear about health providers. But you've chosen to refer to patients and you've chosen the the description of patients for a particular reason. And, And why is that?
1: Because it's a term we all relate to. You know, that we, when the term consumers was, uh, was, was being used uh, in the mid-1990s, there were some good reasons for that. Partly the key reason was that if I live with a disability, well, then I don't anyway think of myself as a patient. I'm just getting on with my life. Uh, but uh, when I go into hospital, when I go on to see my GP, I think of myself as a patient. I guess I kind of, you know, there is a sense when we're, when we're dealing with um, ill health, you know, that's part of that suffering. Uh, we suffer, and um, the Latin, you know, the root of the word patient, patio, to, to, to suffer. And, 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 and I guess for me, it sort of brought back the humanity in the situation. I'm, I'm really interested in, in the humanity and the relationship, uh, the relationship between the doctor. And the patient.
0: And the subtitle to your book is, you know, what patients want. Why didn't you include what patients need?
1: <laughs> that was a point that my father made to me, uh, and and which I also included in the uh, in, in the epilogue to my book. Because Dad, uh, by the time I was writing uh, my book, was was having you know in his early 80s and having health problems, and he made the point that it's not just a question of our wants, as if this is some sort of superfluous, you know. Things that we that we say we'd like to have, we depend on our doctors. Uh, we need, you know, when I'm presenting with a problem, I need the doctor to undertake a careful assessment, to explain things uh, clearly uh, to me, to 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 help me uh, come up with a treatment plan, uh, and to, you know, to to help me with the follow-up and so forth. And so, it's not just a question of wants, it is a question of needs, but you can only put so many words in your subtitle.
0: Yep. So, look, it seemed from your book that you'd really identified that what appeared to be safeguards weren't actually uh, meeting that objective of ensuring patient safety and well-being. And you've just outlined a couple of good points of what would, I guess, make a good doctor. How else would you describe, uh, you know, the ideal good doctor?
1: The research shows what we, I think we all know. We, you know, we look for competence uh, in our doctors, so we, d- we, we sim- certainly want them to be well-trained, uh, as doctors in this country are, and up-to-date, but we also want them to be caring and compassionate. Uh, we, we want to have a relationship with them where we feel free to ask questions, we don't feel inhibited, uh, and 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 you know, there's often this assumption that oh, well, things have all changed now, and it's all an equal playing field, and it's and it's a partnership. Well, from what I've seen uh, in our system, we've still got some way to go before it, we have a truly patient-centred system in which in which we're really focusing always on the on on the needs of the patient and helping them to make decisions. So I think we've come a long way, uh, but I don't think we're there yet. Uh, and I think we we, we have a, a problem in this country and internationally that healthcare has become so complex that there's a real risk of a loss of humanity in our system. And secondly, we have a major problem in our hospitals, in particular in between hospitals and in um, you know, general practice of the coordination of care, the left hand knowing what the right hand is doing. And, and we see that all the time. So many of the cases that go to the Health and Disability Commissioner actually come back to a problem in the coordination of the care, whether it's between the rest home and the hospital or the ED within the hospital and the medical ward, uh, in so many different ways that these very complex systems uh, can break down
0: um, isn't this just simply a case of, of um, having some clear definition around what amounts to reasonable patient expectation in their relationship with your doctor
1: no I don't think it's a question of, of defining what's a reasonable expectation I mean I think I, I think I think the words in the code are, are pretty simple and straightforward and you know, it talks about respect it talks about uh, reasonable care it talks about um, maintain Obtaining dignity and independence, uh, effective communication. So I don't think I don't think those are unrealistic uh, expectations, uh, but there are all sorts of barriers that seem to get in the way of making those things happen in practice.
0: Okay. Well, what are some of those barriers?
1: Well, one of the barriers when you when you go into hospital, and I and I I speak here as someone who spent a, you know a lot of time. Um, helping my elderly parents uh, when uh, they were going in and out of hospital near the end of their life. One of the problems that we see is just, you know, who do we actually go to to get clear information about what's happening? So if you're in a... You're in a, a, a medical ward, and you might be—you know—you're seen by the physio and the OT and the house officer and the registrar and and the consultant and the nurses and the pharmacist, and they're all giving you different bits of information, and the bits of information don't always match up, and and so you're sort of left slightly unclear, and you don't know who is the main person in charge. So this question of who do I go to? Just you know, what's the plan here? Is there a plan? And who's the person who's responsible uh, for that? And and so and and when I mean, I'm much more familiar with hospital settings than, than probably than the average person, but it's incredibly difficult for for someone who has no familiarity with a hospital to even know who they should be asking.
0: Well, wouldn't that be simply answered by having a medical team required to appoint a central point of contact for the the patient and the family, and have that. Uh, appointment as central point of contact made known to the patient and family, so they know that if there's any questions at all that they've got, this is the person they go to.
1: Yep, that sounds like a really good idea. Although even even then, of course, we have you know so many changing shifts, and you know so the, cons- the whether it's the consultant or you know often it'll be the registrar or perhaps a senior house officer who's going to be the most knowledgeable person to pull it all together. Uh, but even those people, are, people are changing. But I agree with you. There should be somebody clearly identified as the lead person for the patient or their or their family member to go to uh, to you know, to seek clarification and to find out what's happening. You know, what's you know, when are we going to be discharged? Uh, what's the plan for follow up, etc.
0: Is there an element here of assumptions being made potentially by health professionals? You know, they live and breathe and work every day in a hospital, so they know how the system works, or they've got, a, they've got an informed idea. But for most patients and their families, they're not going to have that level of being informed. And for some people, it may be the first time they've ever been to a hospital. So do you think there's a mismatch there of having a health practitioner who just thinks, this is how the world operates, this is the norm, and not understanding that patients and their family have, in some instances, absolutely no idea about what's going on.
1: Absolutely correct. So it's and it's not just in medicine, of course. Uh, you know, when you first go to university, you know, the the, 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 the lecturers and the students or who are already there know how it works and it's just completely foreign when you you know you first walk around the university halls or, or when you first go to court uh, and it's such a familiar world to the lawyers and, and it's so easy for people to forget that and of course when they're working under their level of stress and the, and the demand on, on people working in our hospital system it's very easy to, uh, to forget that.
0: Well look, I mean you raise a really good point, it's uh, it's an area that I focus a lot on in my practice about trying to uh, eliminate or at least significantly reduce the amount of anxiety that clients have in a courtroom setting because it's quite a foreign setting and I guess there are some parallels between a courtroom and an operating theatre, I mean for a lot of people, the only knowledge that they really have or can glean from that is from TV series and movies, um, and really they're not a very accurate uh, reflection or representation of the reality of what goes on in a courtroom or an operating theatre. Would you agree with that?
1: I do agree. Yeah.
0: Okay. Look, let's go on to the next point, and that is, you know, what are the? Are there any other roadblocks? Um, you know, what, why is change so difficult? Why can't we just simply come up with a system? That is robust, makes sense, everyone can follow it, and problem solved.
1: Uh, so, as you, as you know, Chris, in, in my book, I look at you know look at some of the roadblocks, and I, one of the key roadblocks is is culture. Um, it's that point we've been talking about, just you know, where we're, this is the way we do things around here, and so you can have all these fine strategies, uh, but you know, if you've just got used to doing it a certain way. Uh, it can be hard to, to change. So, so there's that. There's the sense that all uh, doctors um, and other health practitioners have. Um, there, but for the grace of God, go I. So, it's, we started off this uh, chat talking about reputation, and and people are naturally very fearful about a complaint. So, uh, and 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 so very resistant to the idea that you know. That what the you know what the consequences might be? I guess there's a lot of catastrophising that goes on. Uh, there's a lot of resistance to any suggestion that regulators uh, should be given more power, uh, and yet it's a strange thing. I, I recall going to a uh, suburban practice in in Auckland uh, where there had you know where there had been um, some major problems in the in the care for a uh, for a patient. Uh, under one elderly uh, a doctor who, um, frankly, had not remained competent. Uh, and I remember putting it to the colleagues in the practice. Well, what was your responsibility here? Uh, and they said, well, I'm not my brother's keeper. That's, that's, the, job of the, uh, that's the job of the medical council. Uh, and interestingly, uh, there's, there's a case that's likely to go to the Supreme Court going to be testing this issue quite soon. Uh, and I guess my point is you can't kind of have it both ways. You can't on the one hand say, well, we're not going to be uh, keeping an eye on our colleagues. I'm only rep- responsible for my own practice. But also when the Medical Council uh, starts wanting you to you know, do a few more requirements in terms of your staying up to date, uh, which might include, for example, you know, surveying, Small, a small group of patients uh, and of colleagues uh, to to see how well they think you're doing and what areas for improvement uh, might be. Um, so and and you, and you get resistance to that. People sort of say, "Oh no, no, we don't want to go down that path," and you know we're already overworked and so forth. So um, there's there's this tension between uh, professionalism, leaving it to us to uh, and we see this with the legal profession as well, of course, you know, how we think it's best to do things uh, and in- increasingly calls for an appropriate level of accountability to the public, bearing in mind that it's it's the Parliament uh, on behalf of all of us uh, who says you can practice uh, as a barrister and solicitor. you can practice uh, as an anesthetist. Uh, so you know the, and, and, and with that privilege, Go certain responsibilities and certain accountabilities. Now,
0: look. Do you think there's a uh, an element of the the health profession focusing too much inwardly um, rather than outwardly? Do you think there's an element of that in terms of a, a cultural difficulty?
1: Possibly, but but if that is true, I think that's actually true of of any professional group. I, I think it's a natural tendency, you know, to to look to your own professional interests. I mean, one of the things that's been such an important and refreshing change in our system over the last two decades is is thinking about how can we bring a lay or a consumer perspective to these issues,
0: and of course about a patient use, and family perspective. Yeah, yeah. patient yeah. and
1: family perspective, but also maybe people who you know people who are working with a, a particular consumer group and or who can bring a community perspective. And of course, you know, it turns out that when pr- practitioners who are fearful about that, when they're actually exposed to it and they realise, gee, it, you know, that's that's refreshing, it's new ideas, it's different ways of, of thinking about things. Uh, and, and, and so we've seen in this country it's a lot of it's been coming out of the Health Quality and Safety Commission, uh, you know, the focus on, on patient experience uh, when they go through hospitals, the, the, the Telling of patient stories, learning from that, and using that information to improve the way we provide care.
0: Do you think this is really talking about um, improving the dialogue and the discussion? And and if so, you know, what role does the media play in that?
1: Well, improving the dialogue is certainly part of it, uh, and the media can can play um, a helpful role. The media can also, of course, sensationalise. Uh, you know. Um, case or, or or simply report the the tragic death and you know leave readers thinking immediately that that the fault must lie with the uh, you know with one of the practitioners or with the hospital of course you you know the full story won't come out until there's been a, a review and an inquiry and by then it's sort of you know yesterday's news uh, so I think there is a responsibility on the media uh, and um, one of the things I think is an issue in, in this country is there's a bit of a shortage of um, experienced health journalists. I mean, there are some, uh, but a lot of people come on to the sort of health round and they're fairly, uh, fairly inexperienced and they're looking for, you know, for, a, for a big story uh, and they, they won't necessarily pick up on all the, the nuances uh, and achieve the sort of fairness uh, and the contextual picture that, that you want to get.
0: Okay, now you mentioned before, Ron, about regulation and particularly you know, the uh, health profession regulating itself. Is there a risk there that you can go too far, and that doctors who are overworked—you know—they've got enough pressure and stress in their lives—that um, if one regulates too much, that some of them might just say, "Hey, look, I've had enough of this. I can go elsewhere and earn better money and not be put under the pressures that uh, overregulation can place upon me."
1: I think that is something to be aware of uh, and the truth of the matter is I think we're, we're very aware of that and of course it's an argument that gets brought out, I mean it was brought out at the time of the prosecutions back in the 1990s, I'm going to go and practice overseas mm. we got rid of that uh, and then there were concerns about the new Health and Disability Commissioner system and this was going to be you know, punitive for, for doctors uh, and they might choose to go and practice elsewhere and, and again that didn't happen uh, and, and, and and you know, every time we've sort of had these changes, people have, have their fears. Take the issue that my book was about. I say very clearly in the, in the book that we should be asking doctors themselves to say, well, what do you think are the key things that you should be doing to ensure that you remain competent? Uh, and so, you know, by all means, let the clinicians, let, the, let them come up with what they think other meaningful things to do, and of course, for people working uh, in, in hospitals, a lot of that will be happening already. So you want to you don't want to duplicate processes. You don't want to make it more difficult uh, for for practitioners. You want it to be workable. You want it to be useful for them. Uh, most of us, I think would value the opportunity to have, some, you know, to have somebody sit alongside us, for example, and review how we're doing and give us some, some tips for improvement, some suggestions. And if that's done in a constructive way, and that is indeed the system that's been uh, unfolding in New Zealand over the past decade – I think that's a good thing.
0: OK, well, we've all heard, um, and the media are often reports on it, and that is just the pressures that our health professionals are under. And if we just deal with doctors, I mean, we, we hear the stories about provincial GPs working seven days a week in extremely long hours. We, we hear about uh, hospital doctors working 18-hour shifts, getting very little sleep, et cetera. That can't be good for the system and, and what you're advocating in terms of helping doctors improve their relationship to meet patients' expectations if they're being pushed to the limit. Is there anything being done
1: about that? Well, I think the government would say that the, uh, the pending health reforms are uh, intended to reduce some of the complexities that we've developed through our different district health board systems. Uh, I, I, I think there are, particularly for rural medicine, I, I, think, we, I, I think there is more support that is needed there. I think that's, that's, that's one area in particular where we where we need uh, to do more than, than currently is being done. And, of course, all our practitioners have, have had to cope with you know, COVID-19 and the additional strains uh, that, that, that that's brought. So these issues of, of burnout, of overwork in the profession are real, uh, and often when you talk to the practitioners who are experiencing that, uh, they will will talk about being undervalued and subject to you know impossible pressures, and a lot of those are systems and management problems. Uh, so it's not it's not simply about pay, and it's not about ungrateful in my view, and it's not simply about or, or not at all about ungrateful patients. Uh, it's about complexity uh, and the need to to rethink uh, the ways in which we do things, and of course. Some of the rethinking that's about to happen with the health reforms will bring us back to the, the points where we we, we want to have it both ways. You know, we we want to still be able to go and have neurosurgery at at Dunedin Hospital. Uh, you know, when maybe that's not realistic. Uh, so uh, you know, the questions of looking at if you were starting again, how can you rationalise the delivery of safe care around? Country of five million people—that's uh, you know, something that we want our best brains to be to be working on over the next year, because you know we're all going to have to live with this next lot of reforms, and it, it, it will be uncertainty and change, which will in itself be a new pressure on the people working in the system who just want to get on and care for their patients.
0: Now, Ron, thank you. You've you've also been, as we know. Involved in several areas of, of reform uh, involving the, the the health sector, one area that you've been involved in was you chaired the mental health and addiction inquiry uh, back in uh, two thousand and eighteen, and that that went on for some ten months. Um, what was the, the the scope of that inquiry?
1: Just about everything under the sun, <laughs> so it was it was very it was very broad. The last big uh, mental health inquiry prior to the two thousand and eighteen inquiry uh, had. Really, just been looking at the acute sort of psychiatric hospital end of things, uh, whereas we were asked to look at how to improve mental health and well-being uh, for all New Zealanders, uh, and to to be looking, you know, right across the community be, community uh, to be looking in particular at at uh, suicide prevention, to be looking at addiction, uh, as well as mental health and well-being, and. Not just acute psychiatric disorders, but you know, mental distress that that so many people suffer, and to more broadly look at the various you know socio-economic and so-called social determinants uh, of health and well-being. So it was very. Was a big ask.
0: Well, look, I understand that there was over twenty-six public meetings, four hundred meetings with in, uh, interested individuals, groups, and and over five thousand submissions. I mean, that sounds like a Herculean task to to undertake that level of inquiry. How did you survive it?
1: Well, I didn't do it alone. <laughs> so uh, I chaired a uh, a panel um, with you know five other remarkable individuals with with a lot of uh, of depth experience and, and we supported and cared for each other uh, and we were all in turn supported by you know a group of of um, staff uh, effectively a secretariat uh, who were back at base you know reading all the submissions and analyzing them and and looking at uh, international comparisons and and, and and different models around the country. Uh, but it, it, it was a very tough gig. Um, it, it's, it's very you, you, to you must
0: you must have heard some horrific stories.
1: You do you, you 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 hear so much heartbreak, uh, it's, it's so much unnecessary suffering, uh, and to you know to go to a meeting as we did it in Christchurch and 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 you know a father stands up and holds up these were the jeans that my son was wearing when I cut him down from the tree, just just you know very very difficult and we we um and heartbreaking and we determined. Um, as a panel, that that in our approach to those public meetings, that we would always also try and well, obviously one needs to listen, uh, and of course you empathise, although you can't actually be responding to everybody. You just have to listen attentively. But at the end of the meeting, uh, often um, our, our um, consumer member Dean Rangahuna uh, would would r- respond uh, and and would speak we, we use the Rayo, the, the Maori expression, to pai, to hope. So to acknowledge the, the mind, the pain and suffering in the room, to acknowledge that, but also to give people a sense of hope for a better future. Because that's why you have an inquiries. I mean would, you know we, we, we were asked to do a stock take of how New Zealand was doing, but we were also asked to come up with recommendations for improvement. For the future,
0: so Ron, out of the uh, inquiry, there was uh, there was a report produced. It had quite a number of recommendations. I think there may have even been forty. Were there any recommendations focusing on suicide prevention?
1: Yes, I think there are three or four focusing on on suicide prevention, uh, and and they included the setting up of a of an office of suicide uh, prevention. We actually said that there should be a specific target uh, of a uh, 20% reduction uh, by, by 2030, and that was one of the recommendations that was not accepted by government, uh, because government you know, said, no, we think uh, we want zero um, tolerance for, for suicide. Uh, and you know, I don't want to go back and, 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 and debate that. Uh, what was more important to me was to see that we channel our, channel our efforts uh, through the office, but it's not simply the job of a director of, uh, of a suicide prevention office. It's, it's actually a responsibility right across government, right across community uh, as a whole. Uh, and there were other recommendations that we made that, that impact importantly on this. We had specific recommendations uh, in relation to uh, alcohol, alcohol, uh, uh, and they have not been acted on, and 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 I find that very disappointing because so and so many suicides alcohol plays a factor.
0: What, so, what about methamphetamine? Does methamphetamine play a factor at all in
1: suicides? I haven't got the research in front of me, but mm. but, but but clearly, I mean, any, you know, anyone who's got an addiction uh, is going to be struggling with mental health issues, and that of course can to suicidal ideation. So, you know, these are pressing problems in our society, and, and, and we make it very clear that the government can't fix all the problems. We say that the emphasis has to be on, and the, you know, the report is called "Hey Ara Oranga, Pathways to Wellness. Uh, and we talk about the focus shifting much more to the community, uh, to, yes, the need for much greater access to support, including to... to to talking therapies and to culturally appropriate um, therapies, to you know, to much more support uh, for people who are struggling uh, with addictions, uh, but also alcohol regulation where we've failed to add. In other areas in relation to, to to suicide. We we included recommendations about what's called you know postvention, which simply means intervention post or after uh, a suicide. To, to see and I and I have supported families since the inquiry have going through these processes the heartbreak of losing a loved family member to a suicide to you know someone who struggled with a mental illness someone who when family has reached out for support and that support hasn't been there to then make that bereaved family go through hoops that aren't coordinated between a DhB's review, and in Health and Disability Commission inquiry sometimes. A coroner's uh, inquest, uh, that just is, is is adding anguish to the family. Families in these circumstances invariably are seeking explanations and they want somehow to believe that the death of their loved family member has not been in vain uh, and we've still got a long way to go to to achieve the recommendations that we've made there. Uh, the further recommendation that we that we make is that for all these all these recommendations, there's a new body, a, a watchdog, the Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission, and that watchdog needs to be barking. It needs to be holding government to account. We currently have a situation where the Minister of Health himself is not happy with the progress that's being made, and I think there's a sense in the community uh, that after the faith that people had in the inquiry, uh, and the government's acceptance of thirty-eight of the forty recommendations. Why is progress so slow?
0: Is our mental health legislation is it still fit for purpose?
1: No, we've we've also made recommendations about changes to the Mental Health Compulsory Assessment and and Treatment Act nineteen ninety two, and that started. That's a very complex issue, but. Uh, there's much more of a human rights approach to uh, to um, you know, people with mental health uh, problems in their lives now uh, uh, under in particular the UN Convention on the rights of persons with disability and so uh, we do need to change the law it is complicated but it does need to be a priority it's starting to happen uh, but you know my my guess is it'll be another couple of years before we actually see significant changes to the
0: Can I go back to perhaps education, I'll circle this back around, first of all, just we're talking about mental health, of course in our education system, physical health is given a lot of attention, Um, some students actually put a lot of focus on and it's a a key part of their high school education is physical education, doesn't seem to be a lot of resource and attention put into mental health education, is that an area that, that could be improved?
1: Well, what we learned as we went around the country is that, in fact, there is a lot going on. We saw fantastic initiatives uh, in, in different parts of the, of the country. So I, I think uh, people working in the education system uh, and working uh, with, with children and, 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 and teenagers are much, much more aware. Uh, I, I think that can be better coordinated than it, perhaps than it currently is. But, but yeah, I, I think, and, and I think, of course, parents and families and whānau, I think, I think people are aware uh, that we need to do more, uh, and it's not simply a matter of getting our kids, you know, trying to get them fit, physically fit, uh, but that we also need to develop in them from a young age uh, the sort of resources, or the resilience is the term that gets used, you know, to, 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 to cope with the stuff that life's inevitably going to throw
0: It appears that a lot of the research now, particularly uh, with the advent of the smartphone, is that a lot of our teenagers now are far more anxious than any other previous generation. So mental health is obviously something that probably does need uh, more focus, and it's good to hear that that's the case. Ron, just in terms of education of doctors, I mean, one of the areas that you're talking about a lot in your book in terms of patients' expectations is, are doctors... Taught that, or should I say, student doctors are they are they taught that at medical school about how to be a good doctor?
1: Yes, I think they are, and I, I think they are taught. You know, there's a lot, lot more emphasis these days, in particular, on communication skills, uh, but it, it's a struggle with the uh, medical curriculum. So uh, there's so much um, that they need to cover in terms of just you know, acquiring all. Uh, the various skills and the knowledge that they need, uh, and I know the medical schools, both at, at Auckland and Otago, um, I think they do a really good job. But could you know could they do more? Uh, and, and it's not just, of course, the medical schools. The, the professional colleges are putting more and more emphasis on, uh, you know, modules around communication skills, around um, you know, relating to patients. Um, yeah it, it, it needs to around um, ethics around law even you know and and I think that needs to be woven into the uh, into the program I, I teach in the medical humanities uh, program that is offered at the Auckland um, medical school and, and and where students get a, have an opportunity to step outside of the purely medical curriculum and and, and to to learn you know from the arts or humanities. Uh, and I think all of that will make a, a, a doctor a, a more rounded individual uh, who's going to be better placed to communicate and to care for uh, with their patients.
0: Yes, because it, it doesn't naturally follow that you might have a doctor who is a brilliant surgeon. Uh, it doesn't necessarily follow that they're going to be a great communicator. It doesn't, no. Ron, do you think we're we're talking enough about mental health? That that as a community, that we're talking about the issues that need to be addressed.
1: I think we are. In fact, some people might think we're talking about it too much. Um, I think it's been a really good thing that a lot of the stigma um, that surrounds mental health has gone. Um, I, th- I think some of the initiatives that we've seen um, from all sorts of, of groups, but. The Mental Health Foundation has certainly been a champion in this country, but you know, just checking out for your mates. You you know, you okay? How you know how are you doing? How are things? Uh, and and I, I I think, and I certainly see this among the uh, the, the students at, at, at the university. I think people are much more aware uh, that this is an issue. I think people still sort of struggle to know. Well, gee, well, what do I do if, if, if I become aware that my friend is you know is, is isn't coping, uh, and you know how can I how can I be there for them in that situation, and where can I go for for help? Um, there there are a lot of resources that are available for people, um, but of course you, you know people need to know where to turn for uh, where you know where to turn to for help.
0: Let's just talk about media reporting. Uh, just recently, there was an absolute tragedy in Timaru. Uh, there was a car accident. Uh, six young people, 15 and 16 years of age, uh, were involved. Five of them died, and uh, the sixth who was a driver was in a critical condition. And that received a lot of media attention. But uh, it's my perception, you don't seem to get at the media reporting a lot about the, the suicide statistics and the extent to which our young people are choosing to bring their um, uh, their lives to an end.
1: Well, I think that, you know, that that that's a big and contentious issue. I mean, in fact, we um, and you know, I know the chief coroner I think has issued guidelines in, in the past, and that, you know, that there is a debate about the extent to which you want to um, publicise uh, what appears to be a a death by suicide and the risk of contagion, which is real among among young people. Uh, my sense is that um, my sense is that we have. Fairly responsible reporting um, these days uh, about you know what appears to have been a, a, a suicide, uh, and from time to time, and I think this is going to be inevitable that this will uh, continue in, in the next few years because we're not going to simply uh, see. Uh, i you know sad that I don't think we will see a dramatic decline in the numbers of people who, who um, take their lives by suicide. So I think from time to time there will be a media focus. On this, and on you know, looking at a family circumstances, uh, and you know what support was there when they need, and so forth, and and that's you know I think that's a healthy and necessary thing. You can't stifle debate in in a society like uh, to your New Zealand.
0: Do you feel that New Zealand's on the right track? Are we moving towards a better health system where patients' expectations are more likely to be met?
1: I think we have a great health system, and I think we're moving to a better health system. Yes, and I think, uh, I think we do. However, need to continue to be looking at ways that we always bring to the fore the voices of the people, the patients, and their families, who are the ones who are on the receiving end of the care. It's a, you know, we absolutely need to focus on what are they telling us about. What their experience is and how can we improve things for them? They're not out to get their doctors and nurses. That you know they, you know, I think the vast majority of people are greatly appreciative of the wonderful work that's done. Um, but we should be encouraged to come up with ideas for improvement, and those ideas should be listened to.
0: Professor Ron Patterson, uh, I'm very grateful and thank you very much for joining me today on the Law Down Under podcast. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You are welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's dot nconz Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application, and the future of the law here down under.